Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, good morning, everybody. How we doing? Good. Holiday weekend. I know my challenges. I know you guys were hoping for snow yesterday and... You have tomorrow off from work, and so I've got my work cut out for me, but I, I'm up to the task. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 7. And if you are using one of the Bibles that is in the chair rack in front of you, which I'd really encourage you to do if you forgot your Bible maybe today, or if you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to use that Bible and keep that Bible if you don't have one. You can find Mark chapter 7 on page 843. And uh, we're going to be working through a few verses there. If you missed last week, Wayne uh, preached the first 13 verses there from Mark chapter 7. And I'd really encourage you, if you haven't listened to that message, to pick up a CD in the, the desk out in the foyer. Excellent message about really contrasting religion versus the gospel. And so I'd, I'd love for you to pick that up. We're going to continue on with that theme a little bit today, but as you're finding Mark chapter 7, let me just mention that this upcoming weekend, um, we have our starting point membership class, and so if you are, uh, if Cross Point Church is your home church, and you are not yet a member here, and you're a Christian, then I really encourage you to come to our starting point class this weekend. Friday night, we meet for a couple hours at 6.30, and then we meet Saturday morning from about 9 to 12, and then again, our third session is Sunday evening from 6 to 7.30, and the uh, format of that class is we look the first night at the gospel and our doctrine and what we believe as a church, and then Saturday morning, we look at what this gospel has done to us. It's, it's saved us, and it's put us together in a church community. On sa- that's what we look at Saturday morning. We look at how we should interact with each other and love each other as a church family, and then Sunday evening, we look at the mission that we believe that Christ has us on as a local body of believers. You can't find the phrase church membership anywhere in the Bible, but I would argue that it's really implicit throughout the whole, the whole Bible, especially in the New Testament, where Paul speaks about this relationship that we, would ha- we should have one to another, that we should submit to each other, that we should be under the authority of a local church. And so if you are not uh, a member of a local church and you are a Christian, then you, you, you really should come to this class, or if this church isn't the place for you, you need to go to another church that believes the Bible and preaches the gospel, and you need to submit yourself to the life of that congregation. So I'd love to see you this Saturday, or this weekend, and believe us, friends, our, our heart in this is not to just sort of increase our roles or, or try and have a certain number. Um, that, that's not what we're thinking here. We're just trying to pursue biblical health. So I'd love for you to come, and when you come, there's no obligation to join. It's like Sunday night's not some, not some strange manipulative moment where we like, you know, okay, who's going to, we just kind of tell you what we're doing, and then if you want to join, then you uh, have the opportunity in the coming weeks to respond. All right, end of announcement. Let's get into Mark chapter 7. So today we're going to look at, continuing really on the theme of these religious uh, traditions and then some specific Old Testament laws that the Pharisees uh, were, were, were still sort of binding the people with in this, this really discussion about what is religion versus the gospel. We're going to look specifically today in just a few verses about some food laws and how the discussion that Wayne had with us last week in his message about 
cleanliness and uncleanliness. And Jesus now uses this as an analogy of food and unclean foods and clean foods to really define what the gospel is. And so this is going to, I mean, it's a challenge for us to think about these things. I mean, we may have this notion in the Old Testament that they couldn't eat bacon, but praise be to God that we now can eat bacon. I mean, just yesterday, my wife and I took our two youngest children to IHOP in the middle of the day where it is always appropriate to load your plate up with bacon. But, you know, you couldn't eat bacon and these unclean foods. In the old so what, what is this? What does this have to do with the, with the Christian nowadays? When I was a, a young boy, my mother would go to the grocery store every Saturday. And she would bring back from the grocery store a big candy bar, one for me and one for my brother. And the type of candy bar was a, called a caramello bar, and it was a chocolate bar with caramel in the middle, these big squares. And I had zero self-control and discipline, and so as soon as she brought it home, I would eat all of mine right away. But my, my older brother was a little bit more disciplined than I was, and so he would just eat like one square at a time. I let it last throughout the whole week until the next Saturday when my mom bought another candy bar for each of us. But so that I would not touch his candy bar that he would put in the refrigerator, and so as I would not be tempted to nibble at his candy bar during the week, he would dutifully open it up before me when my mom came home from the grocery store, and he would lick every square <laughs> so that I could see it, just so that it had his saliva on the, on the candy bar to forbid me from eating it. That candy bar for the rest of that week for me was unclean, <laughs> and, and I certainly didn't touch it. It was, a, it was a sufficient detriment. So what does that have to do? What does this clean, unclean foods have to do with us today? Well, let me, uh, let me pray, and then let's read Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Father, thank you for your kindness to us today. Lord, I'm so grateful to gather together with my church family. Oh, what a privilege it is to, to do life together, to love each other, to serve one another, to, to uh, wrestle with difficult issues together, to, to consider what it means to be Christians in our city and this world together, to open your word and think deeply about the implications of the gospel so, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in this room, would you help us as we look at this text? Would you help me, and would, would, you, would you stir our affections for Jesus and what he has done for his people to make them right before you? And, Father, I'm, I'm certainly aware that there are very likely people in this room who are not yet Christians, but in your kindness you have drawn them here today. And so, Lord, would you open their hearts and their ears? Would you give them ears to hear the words of Christ, the words of life? Would you help them refute the lie of the enemy that says that they are, are somehow outside of the reach of your grace? Would that lie that comes straight from the pit of hell would you give them the strength to reject that? And Lord, would you then tune their ears into your words? 
And would they hear not just principles for better living today, but would they hear the words of life? Would they hear the words of the gospel even as we think about clean and unclean foods and how that applies to us today? Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and that your people would, would, would receive much joy as they look into your wonderful word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, verse 14, it says this. Jesus has, again, just finished this discussion that Wayne took us through last week about the traditions of the Pharisees and how they were adding on these sort of extra things to really guard their heart from breaking the law, but it became a a sort of overbinding stipulation that made it even more difficult for them. And now Jesus brings up this, really this object lesson about food, and he says, in verse 14, Mark writes, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, verse 18, this would be a little, uh, this would catch you if you were one of his disciples. Then are you also without understanding? Pregnant pause, silence, embarrassment by the disciples. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, in parentheses there, thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Okay, since I know that um, I have created in you a, a certain dependence to outlines and bullet points, I don't really have any bullet points today, but I do want to just help you follow along with the outline that I've come up with to work through this passage. So we're going to look at three things today. First, we're going to look at the problem. There's a problem here underneath these words that is is really uh, the the great problem of the Bible. So we're going to look at the problem, then we're going to look at the implications of this problem, and then finally we're going to look at the solution to the problem. Okay, so what, what is the problem? Well, let's look at this situation. The problem is, is that the Pharisees are, are, are really trying to question Jesus and, and they are causing the people to miss what the law was actually pointing them to regarding cleanliness and defilements. And so the issue is, is that Jesus has, has offered and declared this parable saying that what goes into a man, in other words, what you eat isn't really what defiles a person, but it's this, this heart of a person, that things that come out of the heart are what, what defiles a person. And so... So what is this issue with food and, and clean and unclean food? Well, we could take some time to go back to the Old Testament in Leviticus, and we could read Leviticus chapter 11, which is a wonderful chapter to read right before lunch. 
So I'd recommend that maybe while you're waiting for the waitress to read Leviticus chapter 11 this afternoon about unclean and clean food laws. And in fact, there's, there's about five or six chapters of cleanliness in Leviticus. And so, so what is going on here in these Old Testament laws about cleanliness, specifically in this situation, food? Well, in the Old Testament, God is constantly presenting his people with pictures to display to them the difference between holiness and sin, between his holiness and their sin. And one of the ways that he did this in the Old Testament was to give them these ceremonial laws that regulated what type of food they could eat. And so in Leviticus chapter 11, there's about 47 verses there that talk about foods that are clean and unclean. There's certain types of animals and fish and things that you can eat and certain types of things that you cannot eat. And some of them sort of seem to make sense to us today. Like we can think, okay, well, that animal might be sort of disease-ridden, especially in ancient cultures where they couldn't, you know, refrigerate. But then there are some that just don't really seem to make a whole lot of sense to us today. And even, even biblical scholars and combinators kind of scratch their head at it. But what, what really is going on here is that God is, is giving his people a picture that there is a separation between holiness and sin. And he's using a picture like the things that you touch, or in this case, the things that you eat, to be another sort of visual reminder. And he builds out a ceremonial system of law to be a sort of temporary instructor for his people until Jesus comes to show them that there is a difference between holiness and sin, which points to a much greater reality that God is showing his people, and even us today, that he is holy and that we are sinful and that in order to come into his presence, we too must be clean. And so all of these Old Testament food laws are a sort, of, a sort of picture of that, that we must, in the Old Testament, abide by these laws to make ourselves ritualistically clean so that we can approach a holy and righteous God. And now what Jesus is saying to them is he's really inaugurating, he's, he's initiating the, the new covenant in him, in his name, and he's saying that now there's these the, the, these Old Testament food laws, anything that goes into your mouth is clean. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment, what Jesus was doing. What is Jesus' relationship to the, to the law in the Old Testament? Is he wiping it all out? We'll look at that in just a second. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. This law is just a sort of exterior pointer to an interior reality. He says the point has never really been about what you eat or what you touch. Really, God in the Old Testament during that time in redemptive history is just using that as a picture to show you that the real problem is in here. You see, the, the, real, the real issue of cleanness and uncleanness is not by what we touch or by what we eat, but by the things that go on in our hearts. And so Jesus is saying that the real issue, the real problem is our heart, and out of the heart come, come these, these evil things. In fact, he rattles off a list. Let's look at it again. Verses 21 through 23, he says, there he says, for from within, out of the heart of man, now listen to these things, evil thoughts, sexual immorality. Just because we live in a culture that I think is, is so um, far removed from biblical uh, Sexuality, sexual immorality is any sexual activity with anybody other than your spouse before marriage or outside of 
marriage between a man and a woman. Theft, murder, adultery, a more specific type of sexual immorality, sexual uh, relationships with somebody that is not your spouse, coveting. Or, or, by the way, let me stop here. You, you may be thinking, well, okay, I'm not, I'm not doing any of that. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't killed anybody. I've, I've thought about some stuff, but... Yeah, you know, this list, by the way, is not exclusive. This is just sort of, this is just sort of a, a, a broad category. But he starts to whittle it down. Coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander. And for those of us that have got through the list so far and thinking we're pretty good, all of a sudden we're going to be tripped up because he says pride. <laughs> so we just... We just got to the end of this thing and, yeah, oh, oh, let me reel it back in. <laughs> Foolishness. And, and Jesus is saying that these things come out of our heart. But, but see, there's a deeper issue than just the action or the thought. The real problem, Jesus is saying, is our heart. Our hearts are, are corrupted. They're sick. They're diseased. This is what the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church. He says this about, about our nature in Romans 5, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning through Adam and Eve there in the garden, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all of us have sinned. And so we have inherited this disease from, our, from our, our parents, our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we've, we've inherited a nature, just like um, my children have inherited a physical nature and DNA from me and my wife. Well, likewise, we have inherited a spiritual DNA and nature from our first parents. The theologians Say that this is inherited sin. It's original sin that all of us are born with. It. That's why. That's why any of you. And by the way, but some people scratch their heads at this doctrine. Some people think it paints a sort of bleak picture of humanity until their parents, and then they have children, and they, this sort of this doctrine of inherited sin sort of starts to make sense. And you realize that you don't have to teach your children how to disobey. See, see, the theologians would say that we are complete, we're totally depraved. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can possibly be, but it means that all of us, every total part of us, is, is diseased and, and has this sort of nature. We're born with hearts that are sick. Now, some of you may object, and you may not be a Christian yet, and you're in here, and you, and you think that this, that this talk about inherited sin nature and guilt um, sounds a little dreary and pessimistic. I mean, you were thinking, okay, I'll accept the invitation from my friend, and I came today, and gee, geez, this is depressing. I'll try and bow out at the next intermission. Well, I understand how it might come across like that. But won't you admit that all of us humans, no matter what culture or what generation, all of us seem to have this innate sense that we are somehow lacking, that we need improvement, that we don't quite measure up. What is that? That's an echo of this sense that we all realize that we, we are 
we're unclean. We're, we're guilty. I mean, you see this every morning when you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror. I mean, come on, you brush your teeth and comb your hair and kind of give it a little... Who among us goes, ever goes out on a date without checking our teeth? We, we know that there's some sort of preparation. We're, we don't quite measure up. We, we're not quite what we should be. And that's the problem. The problem is not that we're eating or not eating the right foods or that we're obeying or not obeying the right commandments. Ultimately, the deeper issue is that our hearts are born sinful and that they are wicked and that they are against God and that they rebel. Now, here's the challenge in the Bible Belt South where many of us grew up in church. We tend to classify wickedness as, you know, public, obvious sin. But, but, but really all of us, whether we're good little church kids or whether we're terrorists that fly planes into buildings, all of us somehow or another have rebelled against God, have we not? In fact, maybe most of the people in this room, our rebellion has primarily been a sort of self-absorbed self-righteousness trusting in our own morality rather than in the sufficiency of God, thinking that somehow or another we're better than the average guy. And, and the Bible tells us, Jesus is telling these people that this is a sign that our heart is the problem. And so our hearts are sinful and diseased. So, so what, are the, what are the implications? Let's look at a couple of implications of this, of this problem of our, of our hearts being sick. One implication is, is that outside solutions never really work, like outside-in solutions, trying to, trying, to, trying to make ourselves better from the outside and trying to you know, do a certain amount of things, whatever it is. It, it never really works, and we see that actually all the way through the Old Testament, through this outside-in sort of religion, this outside-in attempt at making ourselves better never really works. In fact, it sort of sends us deeper into ourselves. But when we go deeper into ourselves, we, we, we remember and we find out that our heart's really sick. And, and that's what Wayne was talking about, about last week, is that the, these Pharisees were creating these traditions that were trying to sort of help them fulfill the law in a way. And, and so they would sort of take pride in, in you know, being able to accomplish this extra tradition that they sort of put on top of the law. And, and, and that didn't really take care of the heart problem. What it did is it just sort of made them more... Self-righteous, it made them sort of trust in themselves even more. It sent them deeper into themselves, but what they found when they got there was just more sickness. And so, so one implication of this problem is, is that, that, that this problem can never really be solved from the outside in because the problem is internal. It's not external. And so let's look at just a couple of examples just, just in life. Let's start on the societal level about some of the implications of, of the fact that we, our hearts, all of us are born sinful by nature. Um, if, if, if that's the case, which I think the Bible's clear about it, then, then our country and our culture then is made up of, of people who have this same heart issue. Then we can and should expect our culture to be terribly broken. And in fact, it is. And this shouldn't surprise us. So, so then let's just look about, look at maybe politics. So we know that ultimately our culture cannot be changed by external laws alone. 
by passing new laws or electing certain officials of a certain party or, or, or doing some sort of thing legislatively. Although, let me just stop here before you know, I get 14 emails before I even have my first bite of lunch. I think that we should be active politically. And I think that Christians should try and elect politicians that, 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 uh, that, that are for good and righteous law. And, and even this weekend, as we, as we celebrate President's Day weekend, we, we can simultaneously thank God for our president, and we can also pray that God would change his heart, especially on issues like, like abortion, that, he, that God might change his heart. And we can actively try and vote people out of office who disagree with God's word on those issues. We, we can do that. But friends, we should enter into all of these engagements and all of these things with a certain sort of sober-mindedness because, because what ultimately is our salvation, and we read it this morning in Psalm 33, is our call, call to worship. It, it's not in kings, and it's not in, in some sort of chariot or help. Our salvation ultimately comes from, from what only God can do on the inside. So, so even if we were to elect all of the right people, pass all of the right laws, and the United States was a sort of a sort of utopian of biblical law, it really still would not solve the deeper problem because it would still be full of people who are sinners by nature. And, and just our sin in, in that sort of utopian culture would just take a different form. And so, so maybe we wouldn't be aborting babies, but we would all be self-righteous legalists. And, and although the consequences may be, might be different in different types of cultures, do you see that the issue is our hearts and outside-in solutions never ultimately work? Well, let's look a little bit more close to home. Let's look at parenting. Another implication of the problem that all of our hearts are, are inherited with this sin nature is, is that we should understand as parents that that means that all of us, even our precious little children, and I just saw a newborn at Crosspoint sitting back there this morning, first time I'd seen her since she was born, in the hospital a few weeks ago, and she is delightfully beautiful, and she's cute, and she's asleep even right now. Praise be to God. <laughs> but she, like every other baby and every other person in this room, is not, was not born morally neutral. She's born with a sin nature. Like I was born with a sin nature, and like you were born with a sin nature, and like my four children were born with a sin nature. And therefore, that has implications for us as parents. We should be careful to parent in such a way that we teach our kids not to look to themselves and their own abilities, but to Christ. We as parents are not to be cheerleaders or self-esteem boosters, but first and foremost, we should teach our children the gospel to do otherwise is to subtly reinforce self-absorption, which can mask itself as Christianity in the form of moralism. Do the right thing. Get the good grade, Johnny. Make the right choice. Get into the good college. You can do all those things, and your heart can still be far, far away from God. See, so do you see how easy it is to miss the true issue? And do you see how as people that have grown up in the Bible Belt that we value public morality, which is a good thing, that we also have to be likewise very wise because we are probably more susceptible than any other culture to missing the true problem, which is the heart. 
So how might you and I be trying to live outside in? These are the types of things that I think we say to each other sometimes, to ourselves. These are, these are sort of indications that we might be living from the outside in, trying to cure our disease from the outside rather than the inside. We say things like, oh, I just know I need to get back into coming to church. I need, I need, to, I need, to, I need to do that Bible study. I need to get back to, to, to giving. That's what I'll do. I'll start giving again financially to the church. I need, I need to go on a missions trip, trip, or I need to listen to sermons on my way to work, or I know what I'll do. Uh, Reynolds has been talking about it for a while. I need to serve in the children's ministry. That'll get me back in good graces. That'll, that'll solve, solve this, little, this little downtime I've had with God. Now, those all may be very good things to do, especially the children's ministry part. That would be a good thing to do. But do you see... Do you see the subtle underlying premise? Do you see the core operating principle of that mindset? What, what we're saying when we get into that mindset is we're saying, if I do this, then God will be pleased with me. If I do this sort of exterior thing, if I don't eat this food and I eat this food, then, then certainly God will be okay with me. But you see, the requirements of God's law, the requirements of holiness are something that we can't keep up with because we may be able to do one thing okay, but then there's 14 other plates around us that are falling and breaking into a thousand pieces. Do you see that? And see, what, what we're so good at doing as Americans is we're so good at zeroing in on the thing that we do good and, and propping ourselves up and saying, see, see, I'm eating the right food. No bacon for me. No hoofed animals in this mouth. No shellfish here. I got Leviticus 11 plastered on my bathroom mirror. You realize the analogy I'm making. I'm studying my Bible. I'm caught up with my Bible reading plan. I'm serving in the nursery. And I go to three Bible studies on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thank you very much. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. But do you, see, do you see that while we are holding up these two or three plates, there's 15 other ones that are crashing around us and we're guilty of a thousand other things. And it just shows that our hearts are trying to cure ourselves from the outside in and it never works. And what's so dangerous about it, friends, is we are so, I said this, so, I said this earlier, we are so prone to thinking that we are doing what's right and what God requires of us. Because we're blind oftentimes in our morality. But the most important implication of the problem is not just that we need to have a sober-mindedness about politics or children or our own religious efforts. The, the most important implication about the fact that our hearts are sick and diseased with sin is that the Bible is very clear that it has rendered us separated from our Creator and unable to make ourselves right before God. So, so we're not just sick. We are unable to cure ourselves. This is what Ephesians says, Ephesians 2, probably one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Listen to these words in Ephesians 2. This is what it says about our, our nature, our state. It says in Ephesians 2, 1, that we are dead 
in our trespasses and sins. It says in Ephesians 3 that we all, all of us, Southern Bible Belt Christians, before they come to Christ, this is our state, that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul's not just talking to a group of about 50 Ephesians 2,000 years ago. He's talking to everybody. And then I think this is the one that stings most as I was reading it this week in verse 12. Paul says that we are separated from Christ and that we have no hope and are without God in the world before Jesus saves us. That that's how we're born, friends. We are unable. This is what Paul writes to another church, to Romans in Romans 8. He says in verses 7 and 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And you might say, wait a minute, Brad. What about the really good person? What about the really good person who just let's sort of theoretically come up with some person that just was really moral and uh, had a sort of high ability to like fight obvious public vices? And what about that person? I mean, they, you know, they're, they're, they're doing okay, right? Apart from God, I mean, aren't there good people? Aren't there good moral people in this world? No, Paul says clearly in Romans 8 that this heart that isn't rescued, isn't reconciled, isn't made new by God, even the person who has a lot of willpower to resist vices, even they ultimately are resting on their own strength. They're resting on their own sort of morality or ability. And really, by, 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 by not acknowledging their complete dependence on God, they, they are rebelling. They're hostile to God. And so we cannot submit to God at least not in any saving way, and we cannot please God. And so, friends, what we need is not self-improvement from the outside. Rather, our problem is an inside heart condition that can only be handled by a radical intervention of grace. Friends, the condition we find ourselves in before Jesus rescues us is one that doesn't need blood pressure medication. We need a heart transplant. And that's where we stand before Jesus rescues us. Which now gets us to the solution, and the final thoughts. So what's the solution? Well, we see a bit of a clue, although you may be wondering, Brad, well, where's the gospel in this? Where's, okay, Jesus is talking about clean foods and unclean foods, and what he's saying is that you know, what goes into a man just sort of goes out his digestive tract. And that's not really what it's all about. But the true issue is the heart. But verse 23 just kind of ends on all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And Jesus kind of just drops his Bible and says, boom, and then walks off, you know. And that's, well, that's not very encouraging. So, so where, where's the gospel in this? Where's the, where's the solution? I think we see a, a clue to what what the solution is, even in this text that doesn't really clearly state what Jesus has done on the cross. We see it in verse, verse, let's look, verse 18 and 19. And he said to them, to his disciples, then 
Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? So Jesus is saying, these Old Testament food laws, he's almost in a sense saying, no longer in effect. And then Mark, in parentheses there, this is very unusual for Mark. Do you see that parentheses there in verse 19? He says, thus he declared all foods clean. Mark sort of inserts his own commentary in the middle of his telling of the story. And so Mark is making a statement. What is Mark saying? What is happening here? Is Jesus just erasing a huge chunk of the Old Testament? Is he taking Exodus and Deuteronomy and specifically Leviticus and he's just sort of saying, ah, eh, let's just forget about that stuff. You guys obviously aren't doing too well with it. Let's just kind of get rid of that so we can kind of start. Let's, let's just control up, delete this baby, shake that at your sketch, and let's start over. Is that what Jesus is doing? No. What Jesus is doing as we read the rest of the Bible and we read the other Gospels is that he is saying that it's not that the law just isn't in effect anymore by declaring all foods clean. He isn't changing the system. He's saying that he has fulfilled all of these laws for us. Listen to these words in, in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is saying this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Remember, this Old Testament law is this exterior pointer, pointer to God's people to show them the difference between his holiness and their sin. And what Jesus is saying is, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to ab abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, this same line of thinking. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And so we know that verse. We're like, yes, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we just sort of, we jump up and down and we sing that verse because we love it, because it means that we are no longer condemned. But why, friends, hear me on this. Why are we no longer condemned? Because God decided to start, decided to start over because the, the Old Testament law and his holiest laws were, were just sort of really not working? No, because Jesus has obeyed them perfectly for us where we disobeyed. That's what it says, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So, so what's happening here, friends? I feel like maybe I'm losing some of you, so tune back in with me right now. Tune back in. Come on, shake it off. Let's go. What's happening here is Jesus is saying... That here's the purpose of the Old Testament. All of these laws that, that point towards cleanness and uncleanness, ultimately we're showing you this greater reality that we all have rebelled. It started in the garden and it continues to this day that we have all 
rebelled against God and because our hearts are sick, we are all unclean. And we're unclean not because we eat or don't eat the right foods or because we do or don't go to church enough times or because we follow the Bible study thing or not or tithe or not. We are guilty and unclean because our hearts are wicked because we were born that way and we have been sinning from the beginning like our first parents. That's what we do. And God gives his people this law to show them, to demonstrate to them that he is holy and they are not. And that law is really, in a sense, bringing them to a point of futility so that they'll throw their hands up and say, we can't do it. We can't. I can't hold this many plates in the air. And God, instead of just erasing or infringing upon his holiness, says, you're right, you can't do it, so I'm coming to you, and I'll do it for you. And he comes to us in the form of Jesus, the perfect God-man, who's God, but man completely, who obeys all of the law. He obeys the requirement of God's holiness, and he obeys Leviticus 11. He obeys the food laws. He obeys the washing. He obeys it all. Where we have failed, he has succeeded. And what Jesus is saying now, all foods are clean. He's saying, in me, if you believe in me, you can be made clean. So now it's not dependent on whether or not you can do all of these little things, whether you can bounce all of this stuff, but come to me because I've done it for you and I've gone to the cross and I have laid down my perfection for you and risen again in life and victory. So do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that I am the solution. In fact, I am the only solution to the problem. I am the law keeper. I'm the only one who's kept the law. I'm the only one who has paved the way into the holiness of God. You see that, friends? So, so now, see, it's, even, it's better than God just erasing and start over, starting over because now God is still holy. He's still holy. He hasn't infringed one bit on his righteousness, which is the best thing for this universe. And Jesus comes to us and makes a way, if we will trust in him, to this holiness of God, which is so utterly satisfying. And he tells his people to believe in him. So the solution to the problem is that Jesus, the solution to the problem of our wicked hearts is that Jesus does the work that we could not do. So Reynolds read it earlier this morning from our catechism. What does the law require? Did any of you get a little bit I mean, when we read that, should, that should have discouraged you a little bit, you know? I mean, who wakes up in the morning? What does God's law require of me? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Yeah, I'm doing that. Who on their own can do that? Do you see the intent of the law? Do you see the intent of that question from the catechism that comes from God's word? It's to push us away from outside of ourselves to God, who's the only one who can be perfect and perpetual in his obedience. To Jesus, do you see? It's meant to push us away outside of ourselves to Jesus. It's meant to, it's meant to cause us to let down our little sticks, which we're holding our two or three plates up, let them down because Jesus is the only one who can do it. So Jesus in his life fulfills the requirements of God's holiness 
And in his death, he takes the punishment for our breaking of God's law, our uncleanness, and our lack of holiness. And in his resurrection, he conquers sin and death and reigns over it. And now, because he is alive, because he has defeated death, he has power over death and life. And now, because he's alive and because he reigns supreme, he can give life. So, so remember, let's get back. Let's not breeze past this. Remember the problem? Our problem is that our hearts are diseased. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that they're dead. Our hearts are dead in sin. Well, here's the good news, friends. Death has a master. Death has been conquered. Jesus defeated death on the cross. And so if he defeated death in his life, he can defeat death in your life. So because he's alive and because he's God and because he brings things back to life, he can bring you back to life. Do you see that? So, so the good news, I mean, it gets even better. It's not just that Jesus went before us and accomplished it. And now if we'll just be like Jesus... No, no, no. This isn't a Michael Jordan commercial. This isn't a be like Mike. This isn't be like Jesus. It's that Jesus makes you alive by his power over death so that then you can be like him. Do you see that? Don't get one before the other. Jesus, this is how God saves people. His beautiful gospel hits our hearts and it makes us alive. So right now, you may be wondering, how in the world? Okay, Brad, I'm tracking with you. I see the logic of what God has done on the cross in Jesus' law abiding and fulfillment. But now, how do I get that applied to me? Here's the stunning, scandalous, spectacular good news of the gospel is that Jesus, boom, hits your heart with his glory and his gospel, and he brings you back to life. And if you're even thinking right now, right now, can I believe in Jesus? I believe that might be evidence that the Holy Spirit is bringing you back to life right now. What must you do now? Turn away from yourself, turn away from yourself, and turn to Jesus right now. He makes us alive. In fact, that's what it says in Ephesians 2, 4. But God, listen to this, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He makes his people alive. Do you see the power in that? Do you see the God-centeredness of that? Do you see the irresistible force of that grace? This is how Jesus saves people. We see a picture of it in John chapter 11. He walks up to tombs and he says, Lazarus, get up. And because Jesus' word has authority over death, Lazarus got up. Lazarus didn't say, I really want to, Jesus, but I've got to start coming to Bible study first. Okay, Jesus, but let me start tithing. Okay, Jesus, but you don't know this thing I'm doing. I got on the side over here. I've been messing around with this girl. I've been downloading this stuff. Jesus says, get up. That's how he saves people. And when Jesus tells somebody to get up, you know what he does to them? He gives them a new heart. 
Listen, we see this all the way back in the Old Testament. The whole issue, remember, has been how sick and diseased and dead our heart is. And this Old Testament verse from this prophet Ezekiel points towards salvation. It points towards what Jesus does, does when he speaks over your dead grave and he says, get up. He didn't just cause you to get up and then figure it out on your own. Listen to this in Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, that dead heart from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So do you see what's going on there? Jesus is saying, I give you a new heart so that now you can be like me and follow after God. Do we do that completely after we become Christians? Do we do that perfectly in our life post-faith post in Jesus? No, friends, we still struggle. But we are now on this, this glorious journey called sanctification because Jesus has given us a new heart. So here's what I'm asking you. Christian, Do you understand this? Do you understand where you stood before you came to Jesus? Do you realize that Jesus didn't just come help you out so that you could be a better leader or a better mom or a better dad or a better businessman or a better soldier? Don't reduce Jesus down to principles for living. He brought you back from the grave. And this should produce worship and joy and and humility in you that would propel you into loving him more. That's what you need. You don't need principles to live better. You need a, we need to love Jesus more. Person who's not yet a Christian in this room, do you see how beautiful this is? Is Jesus walking by your tomb right now saying to you, get up? Do you see the freedom in this? Do you see the other grace in this? Jesus does the work for you. Right now, to somebody in this room, Jesus, I believe, is saying, get up from your grave. Here's this new heart. Let me take your sinful heart. I died for that on the cross. There's no condemnation for you now. Get up and walk with me. Is that you right now, friend? If that's you, you need to turn away from yourself and turn and trust in Jesus. And the very ability to do that is what he alone can give. Is he giving it to you right now? (laughs) Breathe. Breathe faith. Breathe trust in Jesus. Breathe and look to Jesus and not to yourself. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to respond to your word, God, help me feel the weight of this. I, I, I just so often think of myself as a pretty good guy that that accepted Jesus. How unbiblical that is. The creator and king of the universe doesn't come to be accepted. He brings dead hearts to life. And Lord, my greatest need is, is, is not to figure out some some points and principles by which to navigate through life better, but my greatest need is to fall deeper in love with Jesus. And one of the ways 
that, that I do that. In fact, the primary way that I do that is seeing the gospel more clearly and seeing how I was before he saved me. So, Father, in my heart, in the heart of my brothers and sisters who are trusting in Christ in this room right now, Lord, would you dig the foundation of the gospel deeper into our hearts? And, and would we see the glory of your work and the glory of your holiness and the depth of our sinfulness and how you rescued us from these things? God, would we see that? And would that produce worship and love and joy in us? And then would that have a transformative effect on everything that we do and, and how we parents and how we lead and how we interact with other people. God, would that just inform our lives? The gospel reaches into every crevice of my life when I see it clearly. And Father, for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, Father, would you walk by their grave right now and would you say to them, rise. Would you give them a new heart? Would you give them a new heart? And would you give them your righteousness? Make them alive. That's their only hope. And friend, if that's you right now, if your heart is beating, right now you are aware that you are separated from God before you walked into this room. Lord is right now saying to you, rise. Get up. Come out from the tomb. Follow me. You don't need to recite some specific prayer or sign any card or do anything along those lines. You need to look away from yourself and look to Jesus. You need to see the risen Savior Christ you need to say to him, I, I trust you. You are my only hope. I believe in you. Do that even now, friend. Do that even now. If that's happening to you right now, if, if you're trusting in Jesus, if you're looking to Jesus for the first time, oh, I would love to talk to you after we conclude, or somebody that you know to be a Christian that's even around you right now, oh, I, I, they would love to talk to you and help you, help you begin this new life in Christ. For the rest of us, the worship team is going to lead us in some songs of response. Don't, don't rush out of here. Let's spend some time thanking Jesus and stirring our affections for the gospel. We do this by singing to him, by praying maybe quietly at our seat or down front. If you want to pray with somebody specifically, you're welcome to come seek them out or one of the leaders of the church or, or also by receiving communion. And if you are a Christian and you're trusting in Jesus and you believe the gospel, you are welcome to come and take communion to remember Jesus' work on the cross and to stir your affections for him and to examine your life in light of this. The bread represents his body that was broken on the cross for human sin and rebellion. And the, the juice represents his blood that was spilled to redeem us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to come receive that and remember Jesus and worship him. 
wherever you are, however you respond, lean forward into Christ right now. In just a moment, Will will come and end our time with a benediction. But let's all stand, friends, and let's respond to Jesus together.